questions, um, they come in so many different guises. In many ways, this place, this university, is a place of, of questions. Students ask questions of professors, professors of students, and they come, again, in different varieties. Some of them we try to answer, it's very hard to answer them. Uh, questions like, what is consciousness? Or what is dark matter? Or why do we have uh, fluid turbulence or turbulence in fluid? There are also different kinds of questions that we ask, uh, questions that are more personal, that go perhaps deeper to our faith, uh, questions about divine providence and the way God is acting in this world, questions about why certain prayers, perhaps not that significant, seemingly seem to get answered, while prayers that seem to be really coming from the depth of the heart, really life-saving prayers, they don't get answered. Uh, we have questions of different kinds. In the Bible, when you read in the Bible, we also find all kinds of interesting questions posed to God by people and posed by God to his people. And one of the most uh, powerful questions that we find in the Bible is found in Psalm 15, verse 1. Now, it's the same question that we just heard in our scripture reading. Uh, the question is found in Psalm 24. And here we have the same question in verse 1. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your hill? Or as Peterson's The Message has it, God, who gets invited to the dinner at your place? And how do we get on your guest list? Now, much has been made of this psalm as being a worship psalm. As a matter of fact, being an end part of an entrance liturgy. So this is kind of the image. You're walking through the door, you're coming to worship, and the worship leader is confronting you with this question. Who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell in your holy hill? Now, I don't know if this is correct, if this is really meant to be taken that way, but certainly this is a question that the Bible confronts us with. And uh, whenever I come to the psalm, this specific psalm, when I go through my monthly reading of the psalms, whenever I come to Psalm 15, it somehow sticks out for me. Uh, there are many other beautiful psalms that I love, uh, 139 and, and, and 27 and 51 and all kinds of psalms. But somehow, this psalm, whenever I read it, I feel confronted by it. It seems as if it cuts through all the noise, cuts through all the confusion, all the complexity of practices, theology, everything gets aside, it looks me into the eye and poses me that, this following question. 
shall sojourn in your tent? O Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now to understand this psalm, you have to look a little bit at it in the context, right? For one, it really follows obviously Psalm 14, and in Psalm 14 we have a description of a fool. A fool is someone who doesn't know God and doesn't want to know God and doesn't care for God. As a matter of fact, when you look at verse, verse 4 of, chapter, of Psalm 14, it says the fools, right? They have no knowledge, all the evildoers, and what do they do? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. They do not care for God, they don't worship God, and they misuse, abuse, violate people. They eat them like bread. Now, another thing that you have to understand, that, uh, and we believe that to be the case, the Psalms were structured in an intentional way. So when you read the famous Psalm number one, the one Psalm you know about the righteous man and the wicked man, and the righteous man flourishes like a tree and all of that, that that Psalm is meant to be taken as a introduction to the whole Psalter. In some ways, all the other Psalms try to elaborate, develop, respond to the questions and issues raised in this particular, in this particular section of the Bible. So when we come now to Psalm 15, we can see that somehow Psalm 15 and 24 really frame kind of two bookends to this important section in the Psalter. In both Psalms, we have the question, who can access the temple? Who is worthy to live in the presence of God? So 15 and 24. And then you have like a pyramid happening sort of, right? if you can visually kind of represent that. 16 is a confession of, of, your, of our trust in God, and the same thing we have in 23 is confession of our trust in God. 17 is a plea for deliverance, and 22 is a plea from deliverance, from foes. And verse, uh, Psalm 18 is a praise for deliverance, a royal praise, and the same thing we have in Psalms 20 and 21. And in the middle of that pyramid, or on the top of that pyramid, you have Psalm 19. The famous psalm that is the subject of, of Haydn's famous oratory, right, creation. And here it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So before we go then to Psalm 15, I think it's good to have in mind the structure that is at work here. Before we even begin how we have to act and how we have to live and how we have to treat other people, here we have a focus on the glory of God. And I think this God centered vision is absolutely important. And you see it in other places in the Bible as well. One of my favorite epistles, possibly my favorite epistles, is Ephesians. And you have exactly the same structure. Ephesians begin with this, with this, with this phenomenal praise um, of God. And it's really a praise of the glory of God. And it says God created us for the purposes of his glory, right? And he saved us to the praise of his glory. He sealed us in the Holy Spirit for salvation for the purpose of God's glory. 
And only then you have all kinds of things moving in terms of practical Christianity, right? What the church needs to be, the kind of body we are supposed to be in terms of unity, in terms of breaking down the walls, the way a wife and a husband have to treat one another um, about spiritual warfare later on in chapter six. But everything really begins by you being captivated by this vision of God. A number of years ago, I came across a phrase that I really stuck with me and that I really repeat often and say often because I find it to be incredibly meaningful. And it is this idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. By John Piper, right? That God is not only glorified by his glory being observed, but by his glory being delighted in. I praise my God, I glorify my God, I love my God, I, I, I lift him up when I find an absolute deepest satisfaction in his presence. And you see that quest throughout the Psalms. I mean, the beautiful, beautiful Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. To gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to dwell in his temple, right? I mean, this, this quest for God is absolutely present. So this is then what frames this Psalm in a wonderful way, Right? On the one hand, you have this vision of, of the glory of God, um, that kind of profound God-centeredness in Psalm 19, and then also kind of the whole echo of the whole Psalter, which is all about searching for God and seeking for God and, 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 and being sad when the presence of God is not clear and, uh, and, and, and being satisfied when God is clear. All of that is these two things, that the glory of God and the passion for God really is at the background of Psalm 15. Now, I feel very, very deeply about that because one of the most formative experiences in my Christian life happened when I was um, really a teenager, 17 years old. I just became an Adventist, uh, really loved the Lord, um, loved his word, studied, and, 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 and you know how it is, uh, you know, got the great controversy, read it in one week, and, and I mean, it was just really very, very powerful conversion experience for various reasons in my family. And then what happened is that, that we used, since I'm from Croatia, so we used to, with my dad and my family, we used to sail along the Adriatic Sea for three or four weeks every summer. And that was great, but now that I became a Christian and my father detested Christianity and detested the Word of God, I was not able anymore to really read for, for a couple of weeks. And I was not able to pray for a couple of weeks and, and at, at least, you know, visibly, publicly, so to speak. And I felt as if someone was taking the spiritual oxygen out of me. And then I remember the moment, I distinctly remember how I was sitting. Um, I don't remember the color of my trunks, but I do remember how I was sitting. I remember the moment. And, and suddenly a thought comes to me. Now, I don't know what, where it came from. It was a thought. And the thought was the following. Why don't you talk to me right now? 
hey, I was, I was 17 years old, uh, you know, had no idea about, about many things about, spiritual, about the spiritual life, was really a novice. So it never, it never really occurred to me that I could live a life in which I could commune with God as I go about doing different things. Perhaps for you, that, that's the most normal thing. For me, that was a revolutionary idea. And without knowing, without knowing what I was actually doing, I was doing theology in a way, right? Because if, I be, if we believe that God is real, he exists, and we believe that he's a person, in other words, he communicates, and that he is loving, and that he's omnipresent, you take all of these things together, and then the idea that I can talk to my Lord as I go about my business without other people knowing it becomes a commonsensical thing. So I was sitting there and, and my dad was, was sta- standing in front of me and the wind is coming and I remember that moment and I, I just c- communed with God. Thank you for this wind. Well, thank you that you're here even though I cannot pray. Uh, I, thank you, Jesus, for I just, just having these breath prayers. No one taught me, I just tried it out and it was absolutely amazing. I would, wh- what I would give I don't know, I would give everything to be able to live like that on a constant basis. It was the most glorious and happy time of my life, without exaggeration. And I realized that in many ways the Lord prepared me because about a year after that, a year and a half after that, I went to the military and the same thing happened but with greater pressure. I wasn't able to read a Bible in the context of socialist Yugoslavia, right? Was not able to read a Bible, was under pressure by my officers and all kinds of problems with the Sabbath and all of that. And then in, in, in the military, right, they're cut off from the community of, of, of God, from reading, from worship, from everything, all these experiences that I had on that boat really stayed with me and I remember them and they really meant to me a lot. And over the years I've tried to really understand, well, how do we live? And, and I, I've realized that, you know, it, it's something that, that, that there's certain rules to that. I mean, I, I, I believe that God is always present and active in my life. I believe that we can cultivate a sense of God's presence. It's something we grow into. Um, I can meet God at any moment right now. And even if I, well, I talk to you, I have the capacity to have these brief prayers to God. Whenever I fail, I can start again. This is not about law and legalism. This is about privilege. And every aspect of my life matters to God. The most insignificant thing I can bring in my conversation with him, it is the most beautiful, beautiful thing and privilege we have. And this is a thing behind this psalm. So when, psalm, when, when, when David writes, when the psalmist writes, you know, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. You can see, you can feel that it comes from the depth, from experience with God. So this is the backdrop that we bring to Psalm 15. To the question of the Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And there are some very interesting things going on in terms of wording. Obviously, you have the, the, word, the, 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 the term here, who shall sojourn, right? You have this idea of, of someone leaving the country of where he or she belongs, going to a different place, right? Being a resident alien and the sense of finding security and hospitality and, and being secure. That is most definitely implied in, in this word sojourn. 
And then you have this other word, to dwell on your holy hill. And the notion of dwelling here has this kind of sort of permanent abode, again, this notion of belonging there, feeling secure, being related to others who are there. It has many, many kind of different meanings. So when you kind of bring these two words together, right, sojourn and dwell, you have a very rich foundation on which this psalm is being built. And the first foundation is this, that you, in the presence of God, whatever is happening, whatever is taking place, you feel secure, you're accepted, and the second idea is grace. You as a sojourner, you have absolutely no right to belong to this place, and yet you have been accepted, you've been embraced, you've been nurtured. So both of these are elements of grace and acceptance, of favor, unmerited favor, is at the bottom, at the foundation of this psalm. And anything that follows has to be built on that. Now, of course, there are many overtones to this psalm and one does not need to push it too much to see how it relates to many things that we are experiencing today. You know, we often see photos of people suffering, emaciated, hungry, and we feel so helpless and, and, and hopeless, and, but then these photos disappear. But there's one photo in particular that I, I cannot get out of my mind. Uh, it is a photo of a young boy, Alan Kurdi, lying on a beach, in Turkey, dead, drowned. A refugee boy from Syria. So if you ever just Google, you know, refugee boy, dead, beach, just those four words, immediately the, the photo will, will come up. And uh, as you watch this small, I don't know, what, three years perhaps, limp body lying on the sand, waves coming over him, you just feel the horror of, of a young life that was only seeking safety and security. So this issue of, of refugees touches me very deeply. Uh, I, I, I have friends in this congregation who came to this country as refugees. I know people in other countries who are accepted as refugees. And I hate it. I hate it how the political process and party politics and culture wars are hardening our hearts. That we are incapable to sometimes look anymore through biblical perspectives but instead of the word of, the God, of God, we hear all kinds of ideologies flowing. And from both sides, I'm not speaking about any particular side. Ho- 
Homelessness is certainly something that we experience also on a different level, and many people have noted that homelessness is really the condition of the present age. In ecological homelessness, kind of from nature we are separated, uh, socioeconomic homelessness, all kinds of different places, looking for homes, looking for belonging, looking to be somewhere. Like to be at home, someone writes, is to experience some place as primal, as first, as a place to which one has a profound sense of connection, identity, and even love. Homelessness, on the other hand, is a matter of profound and all-pervasive displacement. Homelessness is a matter of placelessness. Ours is a culture of displacement, exile, and homelessness. And we feel this in different ways, not just as immigrants and refugees. We feel in different ways disconnected from communities and friends and nature and goals and purposes and sometimes even from health and meaning in life. So when I read the word dwell, the word dwell has for me such deep resonances in the Psalms, and it comes up again in different kind of concepts. In 4.8, Psalm 4.8, it says, you alone make me dwell in safety. Um, In Psalm 23, you know the verse, right? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or who shall dwell the shadow of the Almighty, right? All this question from 20, Psalm 90. Beautiful, beautiful imagery of belonging and all of that. And all of that is found here in this psalm. Who shall sojourn? Who shall find safety? Who shall dwell? Who, who shall enjoy your, enjoy your presence, your safety? Who will be the true worshiper? And it is right here that this brings us now to the crux of the psalm. Because what this psalm is existing, uh, insisting is on this deep, deep inner connection between worship and yes, let me use the term ethics. And that is not unique to this psalm, there are many other psalms, and it is not unique to uh, the psalms in general. You find this in Isaiah, you find this in Amos, many, many passages in which God is expressing his disgust about human worship because it is done in the context of destruction of others, in the context of living unethically, if you want to put it that way. I hate your feasts. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, Amos 5.21. And the context of that, of course, is what? That people are being misused and abused and all of that. And I don't care however you look like when you come to worship, what kind of worship style you prefer, what really moves you, and whether you have tears. I don't care about any of that. I care about what, how do you treat your neighbor. And we see it in the New Testament. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is really God's, I mean, Jesus' longest sermon, and it is an attempt to bring together worship and ethics. So then when Jesus says, you know, if you have anything, if you remember, if you have a gift, if you come to worship and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. It is really amazing when you think about that, that the whole identity of the Jewish people was centered around the temple, centered around the tabernacle, 
centered around worship and how worship is to be done and how priests have to behave and who can worship when and how and all these kind of rules and all of that is just being set aside. All of that, set it aside, set it aside, forget it. If you don't treat other people with dignity, So in some ways, the Psalm 15 can actually be read as David's Decalogue. It's David's 10 Commandments. Now, it depends how you read it. It could be 10 or 11, but often it's being referred to David's Decalogue. And it begins here in verse two, right? Walk blameless, be righteous, speak the truth in your heart, do not slander, do not do wrong to your neighbor. Do not curse, slur on others. Despise a violent person and honor those who fear the Lord. Keep your vow even if it hurts. Do not exploit others and do not be corrupt. Do this and you can dwell on God's holy hill. That's quite interesting when you look at the way the psalm is progressing and there's so much going on there and people have proposed different kind of, all kind of different things. But one one thing that we can know for sure is that in in verse 12, uh, sorry, in in verse two, we have the, the following words. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The way this is being structured grammatically, it really refers to sort of, we would call them virtues, characteristics. Not so much actions, but kind of attributes that people possess. And then, and then when you move then on from verse three on, you have like more specific actions. So you have in this psalm, like who is the person, who is the person who can dwell in the presence of the Lord, who can be the true worshiper of God? It is someone who has combined both of these elements of, again, ethics together, that you are a certain kind of a person, and then you, are certain, and then you act in a certain way. And when you read the psalms, it is not just acting, but it's speaking. So speaking and action, speaking and action constantly are being sort of interchanged here. I like this sense of abiding ethics in us, the sense that something needs to abide in us. The character, Ellen White writes in Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 199, she writes, the gospel of Christ becomes personality in those who believe. Isn't that a beautiful expression? The gospel of Christ does not become a set of convictions or plans or purposes. It becomes a personality in those who believe and makes them living epistles known and read of all men. In this way, the leaven of godliness passes into multitude, she writes, multitudes. And then you see how this is kind of being described. And we could actually read verse two and say, well, perhaps, perhaps the first line, he who walks blamelessly, and then kind of the following two lines, perhaps that's the way to read this, could be sort of an interpretation of what it means to walk blamelessly. Like, uh, so so who, who are the people who walk blamelessly? They do what is right and they speak truth in their heart. 
Of course, we as Adventists have this natural gag reflex, right? Whenever we see the word blameless, because all of our battles with perfectionism and all of that stuff just, just, just weighs upon us. But obviously, blamelessness has nothing to do here with any kind of perfectionism. It is the word tamim. It is the word of someone who firmly holds on to something and does not let you go. Right? It's if in your mountain climbing and you lose your footing and someone is holding the rope and not letting go of the rope until you come to the top. That is Tamim. That is a person who is dogged in his or her persistence and does not let go. Right? He who is blameless. And such a person does what is righteous. Of course, righteous is, is such, a, such an amazing thing because when you think about it in the Bible, we reckon that there are more than 1,000 references to the word justice or righteousness in its different, different forms. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, we have two major terms for justice, right? Uh, 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 mishpat and, and, and tzedakah. Tzedakah has to do with this kind of righteousness and justice where we live together in community, we care for one another, we love one another, we we are concerned about one another, we really look out for one another, for the well-being of the other person. That is the kind of justice tzedakah that is implied. And then mishpat is the kind of justice that is rectifying things. So you have injustice, so you need to address it, right? And this university community had to deal with mishpat, with rectifying justice, because for years, genuine justice did not prevail on this campus. Now, the word that's being used here is, is tzedek, right? The word righteous. Righteous, who does, does what is right. Right is the word tzedek. And a beautiful description. I mean, you have all over the Bible descriptions of that, what it means. And I really, really like the one that's found in Job 29, 12 to 17. It's where Job says about himself, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, tzedakah, and it clothed me. My justice, mishpat, was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. That is the kind of righteousness that here David is talking about. And another characteristic of this is is that this person speaks truth in his heart. Speaks truth in his heart. This beautiful verse in, in Psalm 51 where it says, God, you desire truth in my inmost being. You don't want me to lie and be deceptive and misrepresent myself. And again, I just have another phenomenal, actually quite well-known quote from Ellen White from, from, from Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, where she writes about a comment, right, about the, verses, or the words of Jesus, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And this is what she says. If these words of Christ were heeded, they would check the utterance of evil, surmising an unkind criticism. Listen what she says. For in commenting upon the actions and motives of another, who can be certain of speaking the truth? 
are you sure when you make comments that you're speaking the truth? How often pride, listen to this, how often pride, passion, personal resentment colored the impression given. A glance, a word, even an intonation of the voice may be vital or filled with falsehood. Even facts, perhaps they are alternative facts when they think about that, right? Even facts may be so stated as to convey a false impression. She concludes by saying we cannot speak the truth unless we know the truth and how often preconceived opinions, mental bias, imperfect knowledge, errors of judgment prevent a right understanding of matters with which we have to do. We cannot speak the truth unless our minds are continually guided by him who is the truth. And you can see that connection of Psalm because right here in verse 3, right, you can see the speaking of truth and then the connection with the first line or the first caller, right, in verse 3. This is the person who does not slander with his tongue. So he's truthful or she's truthful and she does not slander, slander with his tongue. And I believe that kind of this brings us, which is for me, and perhaps this is arbitrary, perhaps it's not quite correct, but for me, this line really nails everything that is happening in the psalm. Look at this. Who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, does no evil to his neighbor. Because all the other things that we have later on in the psalm, right, like disparaging people or uh, abusing them through financial sort of unjust gain, all of that is are just different forms, different forms of doing evil to your neighbor. Do evil is just a beautiful expression in Hebrew. It has this, this sense of doing evil, doing wickedness, doing injustice, doing wrong, doing calamity, doing distress, disaster, deprivation, misfortune. It kind of has this very rich sort of pool of meaning in this expression, right? So a person who is righteous will not do evil to the neighbor. Just the other day, uh, in one of our classes, we, we talked about the supreme principle of, of morality, right? The, the greatest principle where perhaps all morality can be summarized to that statement. The golden rule. Do others as you would like others do unto you. As a matter of fact, we talked about another kind of important thinker who framed this discussion. His name is Immanuel Kant. His name is Immanuel Kant. And he argued the following. Imagine if we accepted the following rule. We accepted the rule that we will never use people as a means, but only as an end. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is what he means. We will never use people for some other purpose. Like, we, we will not lie to them. We will not flatter them. We will not use them to gain something, influence, so I greet you nicely so you can recommend me. I, I, I will not use people in that way. And someone else then came along and said, well, I, I think Kant is absolutely right. But let's kind of rephrase this kind of statement. Um, and perhaps this goes down really to what also Jesus wanted to say, and this is the following. I will not treat people in a way I will not treat people in a way to which, in which they could not rationally consent. 
Think about this. What this means is, I will not do anything to anyone if I think that the other person would not give me his or her approval. So my friend Ranko, right, for example, there, I, I, I think, oh, let me, let, me, for this, let me decide to gossip about Ranko. I would never do this. He's my mentor, my friend. I owe him more than words can say. And now the thought experiment would be, well, imagine, should I, should, I gossip? should I gossip about Ranko? Should I slander about him? Well, let me go and ask him, hey, Ranko, what do you think? I mean, are you okay that for the next week um, I slander you? Um, would it be okay with you? Well, if he says yes, I would think he is depressed or something's not right with him. Because no, no right person would say yes to harm being done to him or herself. And that is really at the bottom of this. This is really this idea. You do not do evil. You do not harm your neighbor. And often I'm thinking, I'm thinking, hey, can you imagine this? You know how the Jews, I don't know if that's completely correct, but the Jews had this idea, you know, that if all the people, if all the Jews, the people of God, were keeping the Torah for one day, the Messiah would come. And I'd be asking myself, can you imagine if the Adventist church kept this one principle for one day? Forget all the complicated theology rules, everything that you know about this and that. Just the simple, simple rule. How many websites would disappear? How many comments on Facebook would just evaporate? How different we would treat one another? Can you imagine if in this congregation we only treated one another in such a way that I would do you only to you would I know that you would agree if I asked you? You, you, see, you see the power of these words as found as this psalm. Powerful stuff. And of course, what is behind this, and we don't have time to unpack this, but what is behind this is this highly elevated view of the human person that the whole Judeo-Christian tradition brings to the table, that the Bible brings to the table. So much so that even unbelieving thinkers and unbelieving philosophers have, for example, argued that there would be no sense, there would be no conception of human rights and human dignity apart from the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is something that we, that the Bible, not we, the Bible brings to the table. The sanctity of life, the dignity of life, that I cannot violate you, that I cannot worship God and violate you, that is so profoundly, deeply embedded in the New Testament and the Old Testament, in God's revelation. Deeply, deeply. So whether we express it that I should not treat another as an object, that I should not objectify people, that I should not use them for some things, but I should treat them as an equal to me, as a thou, as someone who addresses me, or perhaps some people have used this idea of a face. Whenever someone comes in front of me, the very fact that that person comes in front of me by virtue of being human puts a demand on me to treat her rightly and not wrongly irrespective of where he or she is coming from, that this demand is entailed in encounter with human beings. This is what the Bible says, who does not slander with his tongue and does not do evil to his neighbor, does not harm his neighbor, does not wish him ill, does not wish him destruction. So what do we then do with this psalm? The psalm that really, in a powerful ways, brings together these three elements, right? The idea of worship. It's all about worship. 
Psalm 19 is about worship. Everything is about worship. But it's not just worship, it's also spirituality. It's devotion. It is seeking for God, seeking for his face, seeking to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then you have this kind of third element, which is ethics, right? Which is dealing and treating others in the right way, not violating them, not doing things to them they could never agree if you ask them. How do we bring this together? Because when I see the landscape of the Adventist church, be it in the mouths of theologians, be it in the way how we talk about revivalism, be it in the way we, I always see these things being pulled asunder. But the Bible says, you cannot do that. And that is why I, and some of you who know me, you know that I find much encouragement in our pioneers because when I read about the lives of Joseph Bates and, and Andrews, I see all of these things, three things powerfully together. Deep allegiance and care for truth and, and deep passion for Jesus and ethical sensitivity to a very high degree. Be it abolitionism, anti-slavery, be it all kinds of different things. Who can dwell on your holy hill, Lord? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Uh, this is in closing. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I found this great um, uh, statement and kind of call and, and vision and it deeply resonated with me. And as I was preparing for this sermon, it just came to my mind again. And it's this, this, this kind of notion that I've kind of talked about, this idea that right now we remain a largely scattered people for various reasons. Uh, Sometimes because we don't think biblically, sometimes because we major in some things but don't care about other things, sometimes because we only are concerned about things that concern us and don't give nothing about things that don't concern us, these kind of things, right? But here's what it says. Right now, we remain a largely scattered people. But new thing, a new thing is coming. I see it happening, this great new gathering of the people of God. I see an obedient, disciplined, freely gathered people who know in our day the life and powers of the kingdom of God. I see a people of cross and crown, of courageous action and sacrificial life. I see a people who are combining evangelism with social justice, personal piety with caring for worship and the transcendent lordship of Jesus with the suffering Messiah. I see a people who are coming together from all kinds of walks, and that is really my dream. That the God, God's remnant who builds itself as obeying the first angel's message, which is about worship, would understand that you cannot proclaim that message and treat other people in the way we often treat one another. Who can dwell on God's holy hill? Who can sojourn in his tent? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and he who speaks, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander, slander with his tongue and does not evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change 
who does not put out his money at interest, and who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He and she who does these things shall never be moved. Amen.